Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you in this way today. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. A number of years ago, when I was a very young preacher, I was leading a small group Bible study through a passage in Philippians, and a sweet kind, elderly gentleman raised his hand and in a perplexed and agitated tone said, Wade, why doesn't the Bible have anything good to say about dogs? Now, there are some questions for which no amount of study, prayer, or education can prepare you. This man spent most of his spare time training and grooming show dogs. He was a best-in-show kind of guy. And he could not understand why the book he loved so much had absolutely nothing positive to say about his beloved dogs. And it's a fair question. And he is right. The Bible has nothing nice to say about dogs, which can be a stumbling block for dog lovers, because after all, dogs are people too. And I was reminded of that story this week as I was preparing to preach on today's passage from Philippians, because it's that same passage that prompted that sweet older man to be so perplexed so long ago. So let's read. It's out of Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is your trigger warning Paul is going to have nothing positive to say about dogs in this passage. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those, there it is, dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God in the spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul opens by saying, I'm going to review something I've shared with you before. Maybe it was something he told them previously when he was with them in person. Maybe he's simply saying, I'm going to review something I just covered in the first part of my letter. But either way, he's saying, I want you to hear this again. I need to share something with you that I've said before for your protection, for your benefit to safeguard you. And then he gets right into it. Beware of those dogs. Referring to... The Judaizers, that's the best term we have for those Jewish followers of Jesus who went around preaching that Gentiles, non-Jews, had to become Jewish, obeying the law of Moses in order to follow Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Their message, the Judaizers' message, was Christ, yes, Christ, 
but also circumcision as representative of the law of Moses. That's why Paul refers to him as the mutilators of the flesh. Paul's message, though, was Christ alone. And these Judaizers are a thorn in Paul's side throughout his ministry. By the time he writes this letter, he's absolutely fed up with them. That's why he describes them in such derogatory terms. Dogs, which according to the ancient Jewish perspective, were unclean scavengers, not beloved pets, which is why the Bible has absolutely nothing positive to say about them. Wish I had that answer 25 years ago. Now, there's no sense or evidence in the letter itself that these Judaizers are in Philippi causing trouble for the church there, at least not yet. And so Paul is warning them, his friends, not to fall prey to their high-pressure message because he knows from firsthand experience how compelling their message can be. And to demonstrate that he knows what he's talking about, he goes on then to explain why he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh. Because he's drawn a line between the Judaizers and the gospel he preaches And that line is, you can put your confidence in Christ, Christ alone, or you can put your confidence in the flesh. And the flesh here, he means that human tendency to use our pedigree, our family tree, our heritage, our religious activity, our moral achievements as grounds to boast before God or as a way to set ourselves apart from others whose religious resume can never measure up to ours. And Paul says, I know what I'm talking about because I'm the one who has, perhaps above all others, I'm the one who has reasons to have such confidence in the flesh. I'm not a huge fan of icebreakers, those opening exercises facilitators use to get groups of people who don't know each other well talking. As an introvert, there's nothing bothers me more than being forced to interact with strangers. Nothing makes me want to run to the restroom faster than when the facilitator says, okay, here's a little exercise to get us visiting with one another. Ah! But there is one kind of icebreaker that I don't mind. And it goes something like this. Tell the group something about yourself that you want us to know. Or tell this group something about yourself that you are proud of. In other words, for the next several minutes, everyone here has permission to brag on themselves. It's okay. Tell us something about yourself that will impress us. Now that's the kind of icebreaker that I can get behind. And beginning in verse four, Paul gives himself permission to brag on himself. You wanna know what? My resume says that would impress you. You want to know why I have reasons to put confidence in the flesh? He says, here you go. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. 
as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This is Paul's righteous resume. He has the right pedigree. He was circumcised on the appropriate day. He adhered to the strictest interpretation of the law imaginable, that of the Pharisees. He was so zealous that he would persecute those who he believed were violating God's law. And if you wanted to judge just how well he did keeping the law, he said, take your best shot. Look over my life with a microscope. I'm faultless. These are the things that gave Paul reasons for having confidence in the flesh. And it's an impressive resume. He really is qualified to out-Judaize the Judaizers. But then in verse 7, he starts to talk like an accountant. Now please try to stay awake for this next part. So, by the way, you know why accountants wear gray suits? To add some color to their otherwise drab existence. Now, here's one thing I know for sure. I'm going to meet some accountants after this message. It happened in first service. We got a lot of accountants in this church, it turns out. They were all wearing gray. Not really. Paul speaks like an accountant. He says in verse 7, Whatever gains, there's the language, whatever gains were to me, or what, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have now lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So we know accountants have special and specific ways of determining what counts, what's a gain and what's a loss. You've heard of creative accounting practices, which when used, usually the next sentence includes words like bankruptcy and jail. Well, here Paul employs some creative accounting to make sense of his life. Everything lists in his resume initially, it's a gain. Everything he says to describe himself before Christ, it was all gain. There were no losses. It was all positive. These are the reasons for his confidence in the flesh. This is what sets him apart from everyone else. It was all gain, a righteousness of his own. And then he makes this sudden shift and moves 
all of those gains over to the lost side of the ledger. Saying what I once considered to be glorious assets that I could brag about, they are now stinky liabilities. And what moved them over? What moved them from the gain to the lost side of the ledger? Well, it's not what, it's who. It was Paul's encounter with a risen Christ that forever changed his attitude toward his religious resume. It says, compared to knowing Christ, my pedigree, my family tree, my religious heritage, my moral accomplishments and achievements, he said, they're all now worthless. He calls them garbage. Garbage. In the original language, the word is scubula. And scubula can be translated, and this is the part of the sermon my inner 12-year-old has been looking forward to. <laughs> scubula can be translated as discarded scraps of food that wild dogs would rummage through. Maybe it's a callback to his original reference to dogs at the beginning of the passage. It can be translated as discarded scraps of food, garbage, trash on the street, street filth. It can also be translated as dung. Paul says that I now regard all the things that I would brag about, I would put on my resume to impress others, that would make me appear to be righteous. He says, I now consider all of that to be scubula. My preferred translation of scubula combines both possibilities. I think we should refer to scubula as scooby-doo-doo. It's a good time for me to mention that I am not a Greek scholar. Scooby-doo-doo. And Paul can talk this way. He can describe his past accomplishments and achievements. He can even describe his religious heritage as scooby-doo-doo because he's discovered a new kind of righteousness, a different kind of righteousness, not one that he can take credit for, not one that he can brag about to others, not one that he can boast in. It's a righteousness that comes not from himself and what he does. It's a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ and what Christ has done for us. It's a completely different way of counting righteousness. And so Paul can declare, my sole ambition in life now, it's not building up my resume. My sole ambition in life is knowing Christ, drawing near to Christ, being in Christ and having Christ in me, knowing Christ, that's my ambition. Knowing the power of his resurrection, even if it's by way of sharing in his sufferings and conforming to his death. Paul's life now is shaped not by his heritage, not by his religious accomplishments or moral achievements. His life now is shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He is patterning his life after Christ, who gave up everything for the sake of others. Now, Paul says, I have lost all things for the sake of Christ. Paul's creative accounting practices did lead to bankruptcy in jail. 
Remember, he writes this letter from prison. He's literally in prison when he writes these things. He lost it all. But rather than try to cook the books to enhance his status, to make himself look better or more righteous than others, Paul instead now relinquishes all the things that were most important to him before Christ in exchange for gaining Christ. What really matters, Paul says, is not your ethnic pedigree or your family tree. It's not your religious heritage. It's not your moral achievements. What really matters is not that your father was an elder in the church or that your mother taught Sunday school for 50 years. What really matters is not that you went to a Christian university and took enough Bible classes to get a minor in Bible. What really matters is not that you have a long list of sins that you have never committed, unlike those other people. What really matters is knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Why would Paul be worried that his friends in Philippi might fall prey to the Judaizers' message? Why might they be tempted by it? One strong possibility is that it could protect them from local persecution. Judaism was a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire, meaning that the Jews were not pressured to participate in the emperor cult, which hailed Caesar as a god, like other groups were. And if the Christians in Philippi were to embrace Judaism and begin keeping the law while maintaining their allegiance to Jesus, it could ease their suffering. It could dispel their opposition. It could give them some protection in the city from their neighbors who were trying to force them to participate in the emperor cult. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? What would really be wrong with that? From Paul's perspective, it would be a betrayal of the gospel. It would be a betrayal of the message of Christ, which is why he uses such strong language to denounce it. For even stronger language, go read Galatians. Paul judges the message of the Judaizers to be just another version of the status game. Greco-Roman status was based on heroic achievement. Do great things to become great. The Judaizers based their status on religious achievement, maybe to oversimplify things. Do the right things according to the law to have upright status before God and others. Both are attempts to climb the status ladder, just going up different sides. And climbing the status ladder from Paul's perspective, whether heroically or religiously, is counter to the example and spirit of Jesus who gave up his status for the sake of others. All of this matters so much to Paul, and he hopes it matters to his friends in Philippi, and he would hope that it matters to those of us reading his letter today. Because he knows as well as anyone how religious and moral achievement 
can give us a false sense of confidence in our flesh, human ability, which undermines unity in the long run and makes it impossible to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So even Paul, when he gives his resume, he can't help but brag. He's got a lot to brag about, but the way he would frame his life before Christ makes him superior to others, gives the impression that he's better than others. That's what confidence in the flesh does. Ethnic, religious, moral pride will always destroy the unity of a multi-ethnic church comprised of members from different religious and moral backgrounds. Ethnic, religious, and moral pride will always undermine the unity of a multi-ethnic church comprised of people from different religious and moral backgrounds. When we think we're better than others, for whatever reason, it's hard to humble ourselves and put the needs and interests of others above our own, as Christ did. And Paul calls this kind of flesh-based confidence scooby-doo-doo. And he points to a better way the way of knowing Christ. A way of knowing Christ and therefore knowing one another that is based not on our own achievements, but on what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. Paul uses his example in Philippians 3 to illustrate what he's been talking about in Philippians 2, the pattern or the mindset of Christ, which is what he said he was going to do at the beginning of chapter 3. I'm going to show you this again. I'm going to repeat myself for your safeguarding. I want you to see what this Christ-centered, cross-formed way of life looks like one more time. Because you can't see it enough. You can't be exposed to it enough. And he's right. We can't hear about it enough. We can't read about it enough. We can't see demonstrations of it enough. There are plenty of bad examples out there. We need the good examples and we need to pay attention to them. We can't see it enough because the temptation to put confidence back in ourselves never completely goes away. We never completely overcome the impulse to base our righteousness on what we're doing instead of what Christ has done for us. We're never without the capability of bragging on ourselves. What sets us apart, what makes us better than others at a moment's notice. The flesh is always there. Lurking in the shadows like a wild dog ready to attack. Which maybe is why Paul uses such strong, harsh language in the middle of his friendliest letter. Because he knows how tempting and how destructive self-glorifying 
flesh-based striving can be. And he knows Christ and the power of his resurrection, which compared to all of our religious achievements makes them seem like Scooby-Doo-Doo. Let's pray. Lord, we echo Paul's words today out of this passage. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Oh, we would rather not share in his sufferings or conform to his death, but But if that's what it means for us to know the power of his rising so that we too can attain the resurrection of the dead, then Lord, we, we want that too, or at least we want to want it. And we ask that you would help us to want to want it. Lord, we thank you for a different kind of righteousness revealed to us in Christ, a righteousness from you, by you, not based on what we do, how we perform, but based on Christ's faithfulness. And it is Christ's faithfulness that we lean into today, letting that be the basis of our identity and our status and nothing else. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.